Hello and welcome to the Brian Moylet podcast. I'm your host, Brian Moylet, former Irish age grade international rugby player turned high performance mindset coach. Each week on this podcast, I bring you an interesting person or message to help you discover how to be happier, more fulfilled and more successful. My new book, The Book on How You Become a Pro Rugby Player is available now on Amazon and Audible with links in the show notes. If you love this podcast, please send on some friends. You can subscribe on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify and can also leave five-star reviews there. Thanks, Emil, for spending some time with me today. Now let's get into it. It can be a privilege to be a professional athlete, but it can be a very lonely, difficult place as well. To get onto the pitch and to face people was just one of the most overwhelming things I could do. I was taking Xanax just to go to training. You don't need to get up into your head. You, you know how to do this. You've done, you know, God knows how many hours of practice. You don't need to. Your brain knows exactly how to swing that club, knows what to do. You need to get the fuck out of your way now. Just not. But my job with mindfulness is how I keep them present. How do I keep them in the body? How do I let them know there's nothing you need to do here. You are highly skilled at this. And that is the ultimate flow state. There's a difference and that difference is fear. And human beings, even at the most elite level, will make mistakes. And if you put them in a prison every time they do that, you will lose your team. So I see that you're uh, kayaking the length of the Shannon end of June. Chat to me about that. Yeah. It was a weird one. It was just kind of, I'm very, I need a focus. I cannot train aimlessly. It kills me. It just, I've tried it. I, you know, I've done the, tried the bodybuilding there for a while. I was like, no, this is, this feels, although there's a huge sacrifice and goal to it. And I have a lot of respect for people who put that work in to me. It's not what I wanted. I, I need something that really pulls me out of my comfort zone and challenges me. And there's a focal point to it. And right. We're aiming towards that. And I was in with my mate in, he's Ray, I, I grew up, but I knew Ray, I'm in school with Ray, he's a, he, he runs a place called Lakeland Kayaks, <clears throat> and I was in, I was thinking, geez, I wouldn't mind a kayak, like Westmead is full of lakes, like it's something to do, and and I was telling him about my charity, Lost for Life, which is kind of very driven around youth mental health advocacy and education, <clears throat> and we're in a thousand primary schools, and these programs are free, and I was like, we have to constantly come up with ways to fundraise for this, and then he was like, why don't we row the Shannon or kayak the Shannon? I was like, dude, I've never kayaked before. Like, you can't just kayak the biggest river in Ireland when you've never kayaked before. Let's go out to Lockool and do a little paddle for, you know, for a few minutes to see if we like it. And then he was like, no, let's do it. And I was like, you know, he's right. And then I just kind of asked him, what does it take? Like, what kind of training does it require? And he was like, it will suit you, you know, because I've been doing kind of endurance stuff ultramarathon stuff and Ironman stuff. It just doesn't suit my body. I'm too big. I'm too heavy. And I was getting loads of injuries. And kayaking is very useful for rugby players because it's it's power-based. It's definitely strength-based. You, you you know, we've had a few ultramarathon runners out in the kayak who just can't do it. They don't have the upper body strength to do it and the muscle endurance to do it in the upper body. And it's just like, this is made for me. So that's all started and we kind of committed to a date and we said we give ourselves about six days to get down the Shannon. And as it's the river isn't the problem. It's the lakes. The lakes are the big ask, depending on what kind of what kind of 
current you know situation you get the lakes in the weather's bad it's just a slog for six or seven hours of getting across them yeah and you mentioned there having a focus point and a challenge when did you kind of realize the importance of that for you i've always had that like i think i think structure is very very important for me in terms of training and it always has been from you know when i was a professional athlete to even inter-county football, there was always a thing, if you want to be good at this, there is an element of sacrifice. There's only a certain amount of, there's only a certain place you'll get to with just talent or raw talent that you might have had, or if your biomechanics suited the sport, whatever. So I've always needed a challenge. And I, I, I find comfort zones, I get just from my own personal headspace, I get, I get low in them. I, I have this thing called the apathy trap. And I get into this space of apathy where I'm like, oh, and then it starts affecting everything I do. And, you know, the one thing I've learned with these challenges and, and, and taken on, especially endurance ones, is the power and importance of rest in the middle of all of this. And actually seeing rest as a discipline rather as a part of my training, or sorry, part of my training and discipline rather than something you do to take training off. So to do these types of things, you have to get very good at resting and really listening to the body. And one of my biggest kind of issues with the modern fitness world is everything is trackable, which is grand. I get it. It's really useful for sports science. But what happens is we're starting to teach people to tune out of their own experiences and to listen to their body much deeper which is what we do in meditation. The mind-body connection is such a huge part of, of your journey. So it's good to know, like, your heart rate variability. It's really important. It's good to know if your sleep is quality is good and all that kind of stuff, especially if you're a professional athlete and you really have to stay on top of that. But I think we're getting a bit obsessive with it. And I think what's happening with that is we're starting, to me, the most powerful relationship in the world is the mind-body one. And the way you develop that isn't by looking at watches. It's actually by listening and tuning in. So... When you come back to the idea of me taking on challenges, like I have two current challenges at the moment that I focus on. One of them is a physical one and one of them is an intellectual one. One of them is I'm doing my PhD and that asks me to come out of my comfort zone constantly because I'm not a PhD student. That's not, it's not me. I have to really, really work on it. And then the physical, which is physical and mental. And the two of them work really well together because it takes the same mindset to kind of approach them is just like, right, this will be uncomfortable. And I think what we're doing as well, and it's a really long answer, but I think we're not just in sport, but in society in general, we're teaching people that being uncomfortable is, you, you know, you have a God-given right not to be uncomfortable. Things in life are uncomfortable. Whether it's a challenge you take on or the situation we're surrounded by, you're going to hear things that, you know, can sometimes trigger you and make you upset. That's the world we live in when there's so much information that is going to happen. So we have to become relatively comfortable with discomfort. But we absolutely shouldn't accept, you know, if, if people are making you feel that way on purpose. That's not what I'm talking about here. It's just sometimes the world is uncomfortable. Sometimes we're put in uncomfortable situations where we have to. There's a difference between discomfort and being unsafe. We have to not not let that kind of language kind of cloud each other. Being unsafe is not good. But being uncomfortable is part of life. It's it's something that we all we all deal with from time to time. Yeah, hundred percent. And there's a few different things that I'd like to unpack. But um, 
yeah choosing your heart as well like um like you say the uncomfortable like uh like life is and you know be it being disciplined getting up earlier the exercise i just found like exercise for me is like cornerstone of mental health and it's you got to push yourself and and stress your body mm. but you need to you really need to I think also we need to understand that certain people don't feel that or they find that challenging or difficult in terms of the issue when we put this all encompassing mental health and exercise thing it's exercise means different things to different people. To me, it is slightly and I'll be hands up every single time. It, it's not obsessive. It used to be. It used to be very obsessive for me, but now it's it is part of my 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 stuff. And it's not actually the exercise as much as it, it's the comfort zone challenge stuff that I kind of find important. But some people, and I know in my own case, when I was acutely struggling, I couldn't exercise. I couldn't. I, I wish I could. I wish I was able to do it. I was struggling to shower some days. I wasn't eating. And this was kind of, weirdly enough, kind of married to my rugby days when I was a professional athlete, where I was, to, to get onto the pitch and to face people was just one of the most overwhelming things I could do. I was taking Xanax just to go to training, you know? And so I have a real, I have a real empathy for people who, who find exercise something that can be challenging at times. And some people who just don't particularly like it or, or, you know, prefer other parts of life. But I think moving the body, moving the body and moving it in a way that works for you, whether it's walking or hiking or running or kayaking, it doesn't matter but finding something that suits your body and you like doing. That's the big thing for me is some people use exercise as an absolute form of punishment, but you kind of, you kind of can find certain things you might enjoy. Like I know people who they started that as a paddle tennis and they, they've never exercised in their life and they're adoring this. They do it three days a week. They're building the community. They're enjoying it. They're, they're having the crack. And they're happy. They're really happy because they've found something that they enjoy doing that's exercise and moving the body. So I do feel certain people have that mindset where they do want to push themselves. So some people don't have that mindset. That doesn't mean they're any, you know, I think we have to be careful with the day, kind of day over David Gogging stuff where he's like, you know, I don't take any days off. That's good for you, dude. You rock and roll. Fair play to you. And it's pretty impressive. Let's be honest. And I admire the power and 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 resilience that you have, but not everyone wants to do that. <laughs> and some people, their challenge is getting their kids to school, you know, and that's kind of how I look at things. And then there's the comfort zone stuff. It doesn't have to just be exercise. It could just be, it could be learning a language, something that makes you feel right. I need to get out of this mode to take on this thing. And I need people around me to know I'm doing it too, because you do need support. Like I cannot do what I'm doing. I can't do my PhD and take on these challenges without the full support of my loved ones. And I always say that in challenges, they can be quite selfish. And when I did my kind of Ironman man period where I, I was doing Ironman, I was, I was the most selfish person on earth. And that's just a fact. I, I was blind to other people's needs. I missed weddings, you know, stuff like that. And I, I kind of go, I, I, I do, I respect people who do this stuff. But you cannot do it as an opportunity cost of your relationships. And that's what I was doing. And unless this is your job, if you're a professional triathlete, 
and you have to watch every single thing that goes in and out of your body. I get it. But I think we have to say that to people like this is this is a moving the body is a privilege that really is. And for people like me and you who've been injured so many times when you when you you, you can't do what you're, you want your body to do, <clears throat> you got to value it when you can. 100%. Yeah, and I love what you're saying about the comfort zone in general. And it's something I've only learned in the last few years around like growth mindset and mm-hmm. and putting yourself out of your comfort zone. Like I suppose growing up, I would have naturally done it playing rugby, but outside of that, because I, I love doing that, I would have seeked comfort, you know, just even mm. like with school, with education, with diff- different things. And I too, in the last two years three years have just really understood the importance of constantly being challenged in little ways around like i gotta learn how to do a podcast i gotta learn how to make a website i gotta learn how to do this i gotta learn how to do this and it's challenging but but you i you won i think we need that we do i think it's important that as well as understanding it's it's back to this idea of i think being challenged and uncomfortable is, is good once it's safe it feels safe and i don't mean safe as in like it's very easy for me to say this stuff i like i remember even talking about to my three sisters who who kind of raised me and i was going out for a run one day and i was like i think it was like it was like half eight nine o'clock at night and they were like you really lucky you can go out for a run i never thought of that i never actually in my life this is back to the kind of egocentricism and blindness of what of what i do and they were like that you can just go like we have to consider everything we do every move we make and it's back to that idea of safety it's 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 i i have huge privilege because i'm six foot six and i i don't think about safety when i go out to do that stuff so when i talk about kind of pushing ourselves you know i I, i'm fully aware that that uh, i have i'm lucky that i can i can do these types of things and i i don't have to think about all that stuff all that you know all the time and sometimes it's not safe to push the body that's another safety thing sometimes the body needs to there's something blocking it or there's an injury there or there's your your biomechanics don't suit it so i do think it's important that we have to get professionals when we when we take on challenges one thing i struggle with with the internet is i thought but i find it amazing generally but like there is an awful lot of uh, confusing information on on the internet that kind of unfortunately is slightly reductionist so they say you should do this you have no idea what my body is you don't have any idea what my body has gone through you don't know what psychologically i may have dealt with in life and you do not know what nutrition i need i need and i in an ideal world we'd all have access to these people to go and go to our doctor go to our dietitian go to our physiotherapist just to make sure and you know, some people do that. I, I, I really do. I really value that side of things, the subjectiveness of my body. I have a weird body. I've had a lot of injuries. And sometimes I do value, I like listening to people, you know, talking about certain things once they kind of apply it to themselves. And they go, well, this is how I've approached my training. But this is what you should do. I think it's, a, you've got to be careful with that. And I think especially in, in psychology, I talk a lot with therapists who, who, go, we just don't know what that individual has dealt with. And we also don't know how they process the language you're throwing at them. So back to David Goggins, for example, this immensely impressive human being, like he really is like, I I will never in my life get my head around what he's capable of. 
And I understand what he's doing. I really do. But I think sometimes when an individual has had a very complex, he can't just apply his life to everybody else's life. Uh, we all deal and process things differently. And what, what I've learned in my life, in my work and in my studies is that it's not just what happened to you, it's who actually did it. You know, so this is all stuff I think is is where the internet is great and social media is great. You can get you can get kind of bite-sized pieces of information and you can follow people that you really like. But I think if if we can create a, a accessibility, number one, so people can get access to these people, whether it's a psychologist, uh, you know, a dietitian, I actually would love to see this built into fire property into schools. We're doing it with Lust for Life, our charity. We're now starting to look at post-primary, but the idea of building this information into schools. And that's how you build growth mindset, because everyone's mindset is different. Everybody has the capacity to grow in the thing that they're passionate about, whether they're a musician, they want to just be craft or instrument and be the best possible piano player you can be, or whether you're an athlete and you want to be able to push the body to the level that you know it can do and it has to be functional, whether you're an intellectual and you want to learn more and be able to break that information down for other people and research and do groundbreaking research. It is all the same mindset. It's just for different things. And I, I think, you know, one thing I've noticed as well on social media is, is, is you get a lot of fitness influencers who go on and just tell you how bad the other fitness influencers are rather than tell me what you know about your own life you know, subjectively tell me about what you know. And I think that's what pulls me towards people like that. And people I would follow, you know, are slightly different. I I, 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 I like no bullshit. I like, listen, life is tough sometimes, lads. Sometimes it's amazing. Sometimes life is exciting and exhilarating, but sometimes it's a fucking shit show. And I like that because that's true and it's authentic and I'll follow that all day. <clears throat> Yeah, 100%. An analogy I heard a while back was that life uh, can be like seasons, like there's winter and then spring always follows winter, but there are winters and there are times where you go through those challenges. But, you know, the good times around the corner and to just remind yourself of that's like, oh, this is shit, but I just got to keep pushing here. You know, I mean, I'm being challenged. You see, that's at the core of what we teach in mindfulness-based intervention, especially with athletes. So I work a lot with athletes, uh, golfers particularly kind of people who get in, can get in their own way and have time to think. Rugby players don't have time to think. You'll get fucking meted if you're sitting on the pitch getting reflective and thinking about stuff that happened in the past. You're, you're going to be get your arse handed to you. But in golf, there's time to think. And that mind can go every which possible way. It can perceive, you know, the last shot you played in this. It could it could get a gust of wind and go, oh, I remember the last time it was windy. I, I And all of a sudden, your basic skill levels start to leave you. And we've seen that many times. I remember the Clarius, the Liverpool goalkeeper in the Champions League final when he let that howler in. It wasn't that howler that lost the Champions League final. It was the next one. And the reason he let the next one is he could not get present. He was thinking of the media. He was thinking of social media. He was thinking of the video he was going to have to do on the Monday when he watches that over. And he's thinking of the, the memes of people doing this. And he couldn't become present. And when we teach the mindfulness, one of the ways you talk about this, this, this seasons, what we teach is this in eight week kind of mindfulness based programs, uh, the mountain meditation and the mountain meditation is this idea that this thing 
is is beastly it is strong it is embedded into the crust of the earth it is impressive but it is pounded every which way from ice snow wind frost sun pelting heat rain and it might change the surface of it but still within the mountain it stays there embedded in the earth's, earth's crust and that's that's what you're trying to teach people is that things are changing constantly and they will hit us on the surface but still within us all there's still that core element and john o'donoghue who's my the biggest influence of my work irish poet that there's a place within us that's never been wounded and that's where you're trying to bring people to in, in mindfulness meditation especially athletes some of the most insecure people i've ever met in my life are athletes you know and i think there's a perception that they're not especially individual athletes who, who who essentially once you put them out onto the pitch or the golf course they're on their own they're there like they might have a caddy or they might have a coach but that's a lonely place and your mind can bring you every potential way and what i'm trying to teach people is how do you bring it within and you're comfortable with that and you're actually able to sit with that and that's what we teach in mindfulness and what would be some of the kind of tools or things you'd say to help people to like say carious or 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 golfers or some things because it's yeah i think it's very common that yes yeah. so, so, so the most important thing to remember right is it's the mind-body relationship so when the mind starts to spiral which will do from time to time sometimes it can be at night when you're trying to sleep sometimes it can just be before performance where you're just you know reflecting or ruminating on a previous performance don't use the mind to calm down the mind the mind once it starts to go is gone it's like i call it this you know those dogs that have the zoomies and they start going absolutely chaotic and just running around you don't go sit down it's just gonna go fuck off i'm not sitting down i'm having i'm having to crack now and i'm gonna do this for 10 minutes i'm gonna fall asleep the mind zoomies i call it that's the mind so what i teach people is to get into the body when the mind feels like that get into the body the body is the static thing physiologically that's why breath work is so powerful and important breath work for me is is the bridge between the mind and the body it's using the body to calm down the mind and if you get into the science of breath work and the vagus nerve and understanding what what is happening physiologically to calm you down it becomes a very powerful source or, or anchor when the when the world feels a bit stormy for you so what i say to people say the body scan meditation is a really powerful meditation where you're teaching people to stay in their body you know what sensations do you feel in your body where do you feel it you know get information be curious about it and what you're doing is you're keeping them in there you're not getting them up here and i always say that to athletes especially golfers you don't need to get up into your head you, you know how to do this you've done you know god knows how many hours of practice you don't need to your brain knows exactly how to swing that club knows what to do you need to get the fuck out of your way now and yes you have to kind of rationalize things and you know but still the brain almost subconsciously at this point knows how to do that when they when a professional golfer sees the green they're reading every detail of that green every slope every wind condition every you know and one of the things i would say to like some guys i work with like liam grenn he's a irish golfer he's an amazing golfer he's top one of the top irish golfers at the moment amateurs and i said what do you see when you see the green and he goes well i see two bunkers there and i see i said no no 
start training yourself not to see threat. I know you have to, but what happens is you're you're actually consuming yourself by threat. You need to be aware of threat. But if you let that be the core of your vocal vocal uh, kind of vision in what you're about to do here, it will it will affect how you swing. So it's all this stuff. It's like keeping them present. I've even said to him, like, you know, have you ever tried to play golf in your bare feet? You know, this type of stuff. And then walking between shots. So what happens between shots? He goes, oh, I have a chat with the other golfers. I'm like, grand. You ever see Tiger play? Tiger doesn't, he doesn't have the deep and meaningfuls with the other golfers. Not because he's ignorant. It's because he basically goes within and he becomes incredibly present. His, his only issue, and I suppose his biggest, his biggest power is his emotional he can sometimes he can't contain that he comes slightly emotionally dysregulated when he gets angry you can see it in him Rory's the same and when you get dysregulated and emotional even in rugby it can kind of stop you functioning the way you need to function to keep focus and core and understand there's other people around you so there's a lovely little line there and I think in any sport getting the athlete up to that line and getting to skate the line, once again, is subjective. It's up to them individually, and they'll work with their sports psychologists and that. But my job with mindfulness is how I keep them present. How do I keep them in the body? How do I let them know there's nothing you need to do here? You are highly skilled at this. And that is the ultimate flow state. And that is what everyone you know goes for or fights for. So I to me, to me. The best way to get into flow is by limiting distraction because the skill is there. So I love that stuff. I think it's amazing to watch it. And I watch sport every day and you watch the athletes who 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 know how to do it and the athletes who just have never practiced it or seen it as something important. Yeah, 100%. And yeah, it's something I didn't, uh, under, what you're saying there, didn't understand until I was 26-ish. And that... The way I describe to people is you want to go into autopilot. You actually don't want to think when you're out there in a field. Like you don't want to be in your head thinking and you want to be switching off and being and playing. And so when you talk to anyone, like when did you play your best X, Y, Z, golf, rugby, whatever, what, you know, you weren't weighing up everything 10 times over and analyzing everything. You were just playing and it's trusting yourself to let go when you step out in the field to just let go of everything and just play. Yeah. And I think the one thing in music and sport that I've learned that I love to watch is I love raw. I love the unquestionable rawness. So as a musician, you might have it when you were first in the band and you're like, right, fuck the labels, the radio, just do what we love to do. That garage band philosophy, the Arctic Monkeys first album is a prime example of that. It was just lads, just the rawness of youth and unquestioning of the world. And it was punk. And that's what punk actually is in music. It's just that, you know, it's not seeing anything else, only only your your kind of own love and passion. And that's, that's what I love in music. And I love seeing that in sport. And it's rare. But in sport, it's slightly different because you do, you still need all the other things to come with it. A great example of that was the J Japanese rugby team at the World Cup. They just, they just shot all over everybody else, really, in the way they played. It was because they played without fear. They had no fear. And it was glorious to watch. Like, it could have been an absolute disaster for them. They could have been hitting, you know, missing as left, right and centre. But there was a, it was almost subliminal to watch them play. They were leaving passes 
And, you know, a lot of these players wouldn't have the experience that a lot of the Irish lads would have had. And what happened with Ireland was they were crucified with fear. You could see it in everything they did. It was horrible to watch. Now watch them play. There's a difference. And that difference is fear. And human beings, even at the most elite level, will make mistakes. And if you put them in a prison every time they do that, you will lose your team and that that's what happens and i think that is that i know that watching the japanese that's just an example the japanese rugby team just to play with that level of oh man i bought a jersey i bought a japanese rugby jersey after i i I went back to being a child again and supporting my favorite team david campisi scoring for australia when i want to that's what i want to do it's that rawness and in professional sport because it's got so good and sports science has got so prevalent Everything is measured. If you fart, it's measured. And like, mm, there's there's got to be a little bit of gold left for just that. Why we love sport and that gold is the stuff that can't be measured, I think. Yeah, and the measuring, like you chatted about earlier, can give, I've found, give anxiety to an extent. Like, you know, there's all this track your steps and I was wearing a Fitbit Mm. and I stopped. I lost it. And then I was like, I just got this Casio because I found that Mm. I was constantly like checking heart rates and this and that. And I was living in my head. And so when I was working out and I see it sometimes with some of the players I coach, then, you know, with their GPSs and I get it. Like, I'm not saying sports science isn't needed or good or whatever, but like you can, it can put you into your head where you live in your head and you're looking just, you know, you're, you're just living in your head and that's mm-hmm. what is not the flow state. No, it isn't. And I value sports science. I, like, when I played for Leinster, it didn't, wasn't massively prevalent. Like I was told by my coach to eat a slice pan of Pat the Baker to put on weight because I was too skinny. And, you know, that was kind of level we trained in a gym in Belvedere that was rusty and smelt like wet dog. That was where we were. And, you know, some people kind of go, oh, that was cool. It wasn't really. That was the, the far end of sports science where you're like, right, this, we got to go. This is horseshit, lads. We got to do better than this. But what happens is some minds are very analytical and they enjoy that. They enjoy analyzing because what, what gets measured gets improved. I get all of this stuff. I think in preseason, especially, it's a really crucial phase where you're, you're aiming to make those gains. And I think in season, I, they focus a lot on recovery. And how do we recover the the athlete? So, you know, for example, if your heart rate variability is very high, there's something not quite right. You might be rested or you might be sick or something. So I, I think that stuff is quite good. I get it. But I find we, we're, we're, we're disintegrating that rawness. Like, like back to the idea of, say, O'Driscoll, there was just something about him you can't measure. And and it was was basically his like his skill level was just at another. When I when I watched him or when you see him training, the one thing I used to always say about him was he was able to change direction and not lose speed. That was his greatest gift. He was and he was able to his center of gravity was just incredible. So he was he was almost like a second ahead of every other player. Everything he did, and I don't know if you can teach uh, you can teach certain elements of it. But I do find in in kind of the mental side of the game that is now luckily becoming far more prevalent and important and understood. We we focus, we need to focus on the athlete as an individual, as a human being at that level. 
And even if from a psychological point of view, if we're just focusing on confidence, we're missing a beat. Like, why is the player losing confidence? What's going on? What are their relationships like? What's the family dynamic? What is, you know, the history there? And I know some guys in sports psychology who are amazing at that. They get in there. That's where they go, you know, and they, they, they're they able to contain and support the player and the individual. And then you've got sports psychologists who might be listening a lot to the coach saying, this is what we need, rather than what does that person need? And in my the work that I'm more interested in with athletes is it's far more human at that. I don't care who they are. I genuinely don't. Like, I, I think that is, I understand what they do. I understand it's a very short period of time. I understand that it is a, it can be a really, it can be a privilege to be a professional athlete, but it can be a very lonely, difficult place as well, especially when you're injured. And I had, like you, chronic injuries. I, I couldn't, I remember sitting on the couch in my apartment in Donnybrook for a week in my gear, in my actual shorts with my top still sweaty and smelly with I don't know how many boxes from takeaways around me because I ruptured my quad and I was sitting on that couch and I got one phone call from my physiotherapist and that was it and I knew at that point they just don't care and that was the moment I decided that was the end that was the retirement now luckily Leinster have completely changed and I put that down to Leo Cullen, to be honest. I think Leo Cullen is the driving force there. Like he 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 is not just as a coach, but as a player. He he was, I think he went to Leicester and he came back and he went, we're never winning anything here unless we change how we do this and we create a proper club, which is what they did. Because it was a province when I played there. It wasn't a club. And these are things, and there's no resentment with me at all about that. I was very well looked after generally by, you know, the IRFU. They were good to me. They gave me like academy contracts, you know, not, they gave me, you know, provincial contracts. But I don't think they had that side of the game in any way focused on at all. Like, I don't think it even crossed their minds, player welfare at that point. No, from well, my experience 10, 12 years ago in, the, in those kind of environments, yeah, it just wasn't. And it's, I think people are now understanding that that's number one, that, you know, Owen Eastwood, his book Belonging is brilliant. And, um, you know, people, the quote unquote culture and environment and all the, the these buzzwords, but that's that's what it's about. That's when players actually play their best. It's not um, something that you do if you have time, but let's get this move right. It's yeah if you think about that's it, number one because if you think are, about that, that yeah but like you 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 like how that was ever not the case is what surprised me the most like there there is this idea that you should somehow be able to differentiate or just kind of cut off um what's going on for you in life whether it's your family life like one i remember there was a player i played with I won't name his name. He's, he's actually still maintained, still be, still a very close friend of mine. And his mum was dying when we were playing. And I was the only one he could talk to about. And he was like, I was in with her there before training. Like, she's, I don't think she's much time left. And I was like, just comforting him as much as I could. Like, I was kind of going, you know, <laughs> what do you say? You don't say like, oh, no, she's going to be grand. She was and she was dying and she was going to die. And we had a match 
I think on the fr- uh, the Friday the Friday it was a Celtic League match or some bullshit game, and she died on I think the Monday or Tuesday, and he didn't tell anyone until the Thursday because he was afraid he wouldn't be picked. And I just thought to myself, no, this this goes against everything. And how and and to be fair to the coaches at the time, they would have really. They would have received that with humanity because they were good people. They were really good people. Like they were, they would have held them and told him to go home and be with his family. But he actually felt he couldn't do that. And I just thought, oh my God, like that is, that is not a team. That is like, that's like being in a really strict school. And you don't form powerful, you know, winning teams with that type of mentality. You don't. And I, I come back to Leinster now because I do believe Leinster are probably one of the best teams in the in the in Europe, not just in rugby, just as a how it's done, how you create cultures and teams. I think we'll learn from that in years to come. But I just watch them now and it's just different. There's like I know everything about each player. I I see people like Andrew Porter talking about his own grief and his own life, and, and that's as much part of him as being an athlete. And he doesn't you know, he's he's just he's done this brilliant way of kind of being able to hold it as going like, yeah, I'm still one of the best props in the world and I'll still go and I'll do my job and I'll absolutely destroy people in the scrum. But I'm a human being who lost his mother and struggled to cope. And that is the role models you want for young kids. That's it. That is that's what you want young children to understand, that life isn't a straight line and things happen. And it's great to stand and get your, you know, your your Grand Slam medal in the middle of the Aviva. And it, but it's also great to stand there and go, I cry from time to time because I miss my mother. I think that is what we we were missing all those years ago. And I'm glad to see it. And I'm glad to see the work the IRFU and tackle your feelings. A lot of people have done that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you mentioned Sandra Poor, there are other people and you say that, they're saying that and they're also performing as well. Like from my experience, maybe because they're saying that and because everything's out in the open, that allows them to then be their best self because that's something I found that. And I want to thank you as well, because hearing your story really helped me um, talk to about when I was at a good place, talk about myself. But when I did share with friends and other people like what I went through then I was like all good like the best I've ever been Mm. better than in my earlier years before I had suffered any mental health stuff like when you actually do talk it's like wow it's like you're free yeah because it's there's a repression of who you actually are and there's an internalization and that is suffocating and I've always being a massive advocator for no matter what what you are or who you are, you never repress it. You express it. And yes, it's up to culture and society to be able to hold, hold that and, and respect it. That's that's the kind of stigma side of things that we have to keep working on. And it's actually, it's definitely going the right direction. It's not where we need it to be. There's still, for example, within mental health, there's still very much systematic stigmas like you look at people who have told me that they weren't able to get mortgages because they had mental health issues stuff like that so it's all well and good to talk about these things but when we actually get punished for doing it or we get in some way discriminated against 
we start to realize we're not quite as far as where we need to be. My entire PhD is looking at the 200 year cycle of how we've looked at mental health in Ireland. And in 1950, Ireland had the highest level of people in psychiatric institution in the world. We we've always struggled with people who aren't conventional and normal. And actually, part of my PhD is looking at nationalism. I'm sorry we're getting all heavy on this, but the idea that nationalism pushed for social order, social order. We've got to show these Brits that we're not dopes and we can do this shit, get them off, and then we'll show them how it's done. So we just rounded up everybody who was different, who who might struggle with the world, and we put them into institutions. We put them into Magdalene laundries. We put them into workhouses. And that will take that will take a while to really get rid of that stigma because it was so profound. And I think some of the rugby players don't realize the true extent and the power that they're bringing to the table here because they're they're like yourself. You're accelerating this conversation because <clears throat> young people, that generation, my generation, you're young, younger than me, but my generation, we're just too tainted by this. We're, we're willing to talk, but we feel like, you know, we were probably brought up in an education system where it wasn't talked about. So there's a conditioning with those. But when I look at young people, there isn't a conditioning there. They're the generation who can who can actually finally break this down properly. And the rugby and athletes are a huge part of that because they're teaching these young kids, right, this is on the agenda now. And we're going to be the ones to shift the dial here. Um, and truly, when you look at our history with mental health, that's the power of this. This isn't putting too much on anyone's shoulders. This isn't any one person's job. It isn't Andrew Porter's job, but we must support it and celebrate it. And any other rugby players that want to talk about their mental health, our athletes generally, we must hold that and contain that and respect it. Yeah, 100%. And with your PhD, it sounds really interesting, but um, something, you know, you mentioned in Ireland that we've said, I didn't wasn't aware of that, but we've always had, say, a mental health issue or you know issue with society and um where does that stem from because another thing i've heard of is generational trauma and i suppose mm-hmm. probably everyone knows of someone in a family or wider family who's had uh depression anxiety alcoholism or mm-hmm. something like just I, I think that you know i think that people will know of people in what their wider family or something it's prevalent you know it is prevalent. And I didn't realize how much it was till I actually nearly 10 years ago came out and spoke about my own issue. And I, like I talk about my journey quite openly and I've, you know, of a podcast, but I, I look at the kind of very abusive primary school I went to, which was Christian Brothers, and they were they were nasty. They were nasty. There's just no other way of putting it. They might have had reasons to, you know, things may have happened to them. This is when it becomes a genera- generational trauma. Some of these and I'm not making any any excuses for them because they they were apparent. But they, you know, you wonder, was this as a baton that was passed on to them? Were they young men that were forced to become priests because of a culture and society that put so much power on the Catholic Church? And even Eamon De Valera, like he's got a lot to play in this. You know, he's often celebrated and there's reasons he, sh- he should be, but there's also reasons he shouldn't be. He gave the Catholic Church a full run to weaponize shame. He gave it to them. He gave them that power and they used it. And I always say this, and I've said this in my PhD, I have no problem with faith. Faith is what gives people comfort and it's important. It's the institutions. If you give that much power to somebody, they will will generally abuse it. Unfortunately, that's called the power paradox. 
but they, by God, the Catholic Church abused it. So what we have now is, if you look at the Irish, and I'll just give you a really quick history, and most people know this history, but when you actually think about it out loud, you start to go, gee, no wonder Freud said you couldn't psychoanalyze Irish people. 1817, we built our first institution. We had a famine that wiped out a quarter of the population. A famine that was whatever way we kind of could have been prevented. That's probably the nicest way I can put it. Then we had, we well, during that time, deep colonialism, where we always felt pretty worthless about ourselves, where we were always kind of told, even if we tried to make something of our life, no, you're not, not having that, get back down to where you should be. And then we had our, you know, independence, and then we had civil wars, and we had, we had such an absolutely difficult history. And what happened then is the church weaponized shame and we put women and children into prisons. And then we put people into institutions who were just different, who might have been somebody who was struggling with the world a little bit, or maybe somebody who was, you know, at now when we look at it, probably not neurodivergent. We just put them into institutions and we just hid them away. And that went on for a long, long time. We had institutions all over the country. And as I said, my PhD is looking at these institutions. It's like, so what happened there? How do we let this happen? How did we not advocate for these people? How do we let them end up, most of them, unfortunately, staying in there for 20, 30 years and dying there when there was probably very little wrong with them? And the common denominator of pretty much most of what I'm finding now was trauma. And the very first question we should be asking anybody in mental health is what happened to you? That has to be the starting point. But unfortunately, our current mental health system asks what's wrong with you. I have depression. Okay. Depression should be the, the last thing you're asked. What happened to you? Well, you know, you might have a story. I was, I, I was badly treated. I was bullied all my life. I, Oh, okay. Now I'm starting to get, to, well, I'll tell you what, here's drugs. That will solve it. So the entire medical model is, is, is based on asking you the question, what's wrong with you rather than what happened to you. And I think we need to be bringing a far deeper look at the therapeutic model into mental health care. And unless we do that, we're going to be having this conversation in 50 years time. Unless we change the actual paradigm and how we look at mental health and how it's treated at, at, at the very, you know, crisis level, we're going to be having this conversation in 50 years. Unless we're looking at early intervention programs, unless we're looking at trauma-informed care, unless we're actually holding and containing people and not putting them into home places and telling them there's something wrong with them and numbing them. And I think that's the bigger picture. That's the macro stuff. That's why I'm doing five years of study is to go, what if that isn't the answer, what is potentially the answer? And in rugby and in sport and in everything like this, we're all humans. That's just the reality of it. Human being, being a human is beautiful sometimes, but it's messy. It's challenging sometimes. And we have a wellness industry that sometimes tells us you can talk about everything once it's good stuff. Don't talk to me about any of the bad stuff because I don't want to deal with it. Or it's just pissing on my buzz. I mean, that's not a wellness industry. That's a non-wellness industry. And we've had too much silence. So I'm, I'm a huge celebrator of people having these conversations, but I'm even more passionate now about what, what, what do the systems look like? How do we support people? How do we actually get them through their shit? 
how do we get them sustainably through their shit so they can move on with their life? Because um, our current system isn't doing that. Yeah, fair play. It's so powerful. And um, yeah, that early intervention, that, yeah, helping people when they're like, yeah, early intervention versus at rock bottom. And I think, you know, when I started to, I haven't lived in Ireland for six years-ish or whatever, but you know, people always talk about cost when it comes to government, like always everything, you know, they talk about cost. And I think that the wider, like the wider impact, the impact on society as a whole, if this is attacked with something, what you're saying is, is just, it's, it's nearly, it's impossible to imagine like how big an impact it would have on a society. Like, cause like we said, every single person Whose listeners will know of someone who has had mental health issues or depression or anxiety or alcoholism or different things, whatever it is. And, and that affects so many, if affects so many people, even if it's not just the person themselves, you know? No, like it. So to be positive about this and not kind of for the sake of it, we are a population of 5 million people we can do this. We can actually change this. We can be world leaders in how we look at mental health. We can create a different system, but we need political will. And right now we don't have it. They're terrified of this subject. It's Pandora's box. They're not willing to open, not because they're bad people, because they're as much part of the stigma as we all are. You know, they grew up in the same society we all grew up in. They're conditioned the way we're conditioned. So it's difficult for them to have these conversations, but they're leaders and they're paid to do that. They're paid by our tax and our, our wages to do that. So we need bravery and courage. It's courage here. We had, right, the reason I did my PhD started, the reason I took this on and applied and went to Trinity and going, I want to do this, because it's a huge process. Like you literally have to go through a big process and a proposal. I got the CAMS report. I was in America in January and it was sent to me the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Independent Review of the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services. And I looked at it and I'm, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say I cried when I read it because I was, I was just so fucking sick of it because for 10 years I've been doing this work and I've watched failure after failure and us making excuses for health systems that are just so dysfunctional and broken and unfixable to be perfectly honest about it. And not the people that work in them. These people are unbelievable. Some of the people I've met in CAMS are just unbelievable. But they're not getting to do their bloody jobs. And we're spending, people go, oh, we spend 6% of our mental health on budget, our health budget on mental health. Oh, it should be 12%. I don't want it to be 12% if we continue spending it the way we spend it. It's a waste of fucking money. You've psychiatrists in Dubai on computers Diagnosing children in Kerry and not watching them, not monitoring them and leaving them on hardcore medications. And we, we accept this is, this is as bad as it gets, you know, and we've accepted it. So from my point is we can change it, but it's going to take huge levels of bravery. And even if you strip out all the emotion, which I find hard to do in this regard, economically, this will save society billions every single year, billions upon billions upon billions. If we create early intervention models and care, if we develop community level supports, if we if we develop therapeutic supports, yes, there'll be a little bit of 
difficulty at the start to get used to it with healing problems. But fuck me, guys, we can't keep doing this. It has to change. And I look at the reason I say this, the NHS, which isn't a perfect system by all means at all, but it ultimately, in my moment of absolute darkness, it saved me. And I look at that and I think we deserve better here. I think that's more than the big thing. We deserve better. You started this question by saying everybody knows somebody. Every day I listen to a helpless mother telling me I cannot get help for my child. I can't. And or if I got her in, they've lost her files. She's a different therapist this week. She doesn't know who this guy is. She's a new diagnosis. She's been put on medication and I don't even know what it is. Anyone listening to this, if you think that's acceptable, that's okay. Fair enough. But if you don't, please start using this as something you care about when it comes to voting for people. And as I said, I'm willing to work with every, I have no political linings, none. I, I don't align to any political party. I just don't like people dying. And I think that's the difference. And um, I think what motivates me is we can change it. I think we really can. Ireland's good at this. I've looked at our history. We're good. I go, no, fuck this. This is terrible. Let's let's do something better. We're good at that. Let's stop, you know, let's bring in the smoking ban. Let's let's push for marriage equality. Let's be the first. We are good at this because we're small and we're passionate. And we still, this is important. I'm sorry, it's a really long answer. We still have the luxury of being able to meet our politicians. You can't do that in America. You can't do that in the UK. We should never lose it. And I know they make bullshit decisions sometimes, but we are lucky in Ireland with democracy. We're in a good place with it. And we should respect that. And, you know, if, if if you want to go down and meet your local politician, you can have a meeting and you can put it into a diary and you can go down to their office. That's important. That's how we drive change. And as I said, if your starting point is they're all terrible, then conflict won't fix us. It just doesn't fix it. Um, I'm, that's one thing I'm 100% sure of. 100%, yeah. And um, just going to kids, I think it's it's incredible um, and fair play the work you're doing in schools, like it just just helping young people, um, you know, with mindset and, you know, that growth mindset and mindset in general. And uh, something I think is changing now, just chatting to a kid, an eight-year-old kid of a grandson of a fella in the club here or whatever, but he has ADD or ADHD or something. And I think when I was young, I probably had it. I just didn't like being in class. I wanted to be outside and I'd be messing and chatting and whatever, whatever. But I was just always getting in trouble, always getting kicked out. And it was back in the day, if you didn't sit there for eight hours and not talk and just concentrate that you were a bad kid. But, um, you know, you mentioned neurodivergency as well there earlier. But um, I think it's understanding that, you know, kids, a lot of kids are different and or the, you're yeah. a lot of... What what it said the percentages neurodivergency yeah like so very few what I was like I was yeah. like and and I think I I had Adam Harris on the podcast recently and I talked about this kid and I when I was in primary school when I look back now this kid was God help him he was tortured by the teachers and the kid had, he had autism like it was clear as day and there was nowhere for him and he was put into this classroom and I used to he used to live close close to me so I'd walk home with him sometimes and he wouldn't talk. 
And I was like, I, I, I think of it, I think about this all the time. Like, I think as I got older, I was like, well, I wonder how he is now. Like, I wonder how much that affected him. I wonder, is he doing okay? And he is, he's doing, he's doing okay. Like he's got a good job and he's, he's an incredibly talented human being. He's very intelligent because somebody found and, and you know, that found a way for him to be himself. That was it. And, uh, you know, was able to bring this talent out of him that he always had, but it was just muted in school because it was like, right, he's he's not like the rest of us. You know, and, and that was the teachers. Never mind, I, I couldn't help but you know, you can't you can't put that on the students who were who at times were were weren't particularly nice to them either. Like we were watching teachers do it. So for me with something like neurodivergence, I've really massively celebrate the fact that this is is really on the table now. And we're we're exploring that this idea of having a homogenous youth that they all have to be perfectly conventional and parents often say to me oh you know i'm worried about my my kid because he's not this this and this i said well don't maybe worry it's the wrong word here maybe your kid isn't built to sit in a classroom for eight hours or six hours a day maybe their their creative mind is off and maybe we should find a way to find how do we channel that and that's why early intervention once again is crucial because if you get that information if you assess the child early and you start to figure out, right, this is these are the things they find challenging. These are the things they're particularly good at. They're very skillful at this. And you change the language and how you talk about neurodivergence rather than they, they can't. Well, they can do this. They're very good at this. Let's let's do lots of this. Let's help them. Um, and that's where early intervention and assessment is important. But the problem, once again, is we're not getting assessed. We're not getting these children assessed. And what's happening is a lot of young children are now assessing themselves on TikTok. You know, you're starting to see what happens with bad systems when you assess a child. So, so let's paint this picture of neurodivergence. You have a kid who's, I don't know, six years of age in school, starting school and going to school and find it really difficult to sit still or finding the room overwhelming or the noise in the room overwhelming or whatever it might be. And at that point, the teacher notices it, goes, OK, let's let's get an assessment here. And they do a proper educational psychologist assessment. And we find out that, the, you know, maybe the, 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 um, this young child has Asperger's. Okay, okay, now we know. Now we have a special needs assistant that can support that. And we have a, we've, we, there's a place in the school if they get overwhelmed that they can go and chill out for, you know, and, and take some space for themselves. We all understand it. The classroom's educated in it, so they're supported. So this is the kind of utopia. It's not there. Some schools are doing this, but it's not as an educational framework. And then that kid is is basically supported in what they're very good. Say they're a brilliant musician. Like, okay, well, let's let's really focus on getting them good lessons so they can really build their craft. And then by the, you know, they go through the whole school system. By the time they're eighteen, they feel completely at ease, part of it. They feel accepted, as Adam Harris says, as I am. And they've also developed whatever passion they may have, whatever skill it might be, whether it's music, whether it is whatever it is and that to me is is where we have to go with neurodivergence and what's happening now unfortunately is kids aren't getting assessed they're not getting fully supported when they do get assessed and what we're seeing now a lot of is adults getting assessed and getting diagnoses of ADHD and which is great on one hand but then you're getting the, the adult kind of going fuck now it makes sense and Stuff comes with that too, I think. A little bit of regret. 
a little bit of like, you know, yes, there's a relief there, but there's like, oh, that's why it was so hard for me. And that's what happens when we're not doing, we're not creating good systems. So, as I said, back to a lust for life, our charity, this is what we aim at is early intervention. How do we create these models? That's how important they are. I cannot for the life of me think why we're not putting a huge focus on this in every regard. But the other issue is, it feels like I'm giving you a political manifesto here, but the other issue is we can't recruit enough people to do this type of work because it's tough work. Psychology is a tough game. And now what's happened is psychology is really hard to get into because our stupid fucking point system has made it really hard to get into. So we have these brilliant people who could be world-class psychologists who've got balls of empathy who are now kind of going, well, I, I just didn't get 600 points in my leaving, so I'm, I'm not doing what I, I, I'd be very good at doing. And we can't recruit. And then what's happening is a lot of the recruitments and psychologists and psychotherapists are going, I don't know if I can work for a system that tells a suicidal teenage girl I can't see her for two years. So then they go to Australia, they go to Canada where there's a better system. You see what I mean? It's just dysfunctional. And nobody's sitting down and going, and nobody's standing up to it either. It's just like, right, we, we somehow accept this. So that's what forced me into doing my study. So I'm like, well, this is, I don't understand this. Back, let's get back to the start of the podcast. When I talked about needing a challenge and needing something to focus on, I think our society needs that too. And we need to get the fuck out of our comfort zone here and actually realize that we need to provide better care for children. And that is hard. It's not easy. It's very complex and it's very challenging and difficult, but it's achievable. And so is, you know, kayaking the Shannon. It's hard. It's uncomfortable, but it's achievable. And that's the difference. I think what we do in politics is we, we use words like complex to believe that it isn't achievable. And right now, any politician listening to this, you need to get out of your comfort zone and you need to and, I, and I'll come with you and we'll come with you and I understand it's scary, but we got to do something now because this is absolutely not working. Yeah, oh, I love it. I love everything you're saying and um, hats off. And one, uh, thanks for your time. One last thing I just want to mention, um, it's kind of come up there and earlier on in the podcast is um, self-expression and expressing yourself. And you mentioned, say, the autistic person and um it's something that I found as well, not trying to conform or see how do I need to be or, you know, trying to fit myself into a mold. Or I found that if you have the mindset or the attitude of I'm just going to be a nice person, like just be a nice person and then be who I am. And then that simple, just little equation has just been very powerful for very huge for myself, just like ease like really not caring about what people think like if people don't like me whatever whatever if they want to think whatever but you just be a nice person and you know because express yeah. yourself say if it's art or if it's different things or you know we have that kind of tall poppy or the crab mentality or whatever you know so there is that at play but you do have to i feel that you have to express yourself yeah you do and it's important to say that some every single person there's a community for you Yes. You know, it mightn't be this community where people dislike conventionality, but there's a community for everybody where they're fully accepted and supported. And I would love that to be the entire world, but it's just a reality that it isn't. There's people out there who aren't nice people are those people who have different biases that probably come from nothing, but they have them. 
but there is a community anyone listen to this who feels like oh well there is there's a community for everybody and where you know i think where you're able to express and Edith eager who have interviewed a few times is another huge influence on my work she says expression is the opposite of depression and the ability to express and you know some people might say well there's people who express negative views well let them let them in their in their if they have a people that they do let them you don't control that come back to what you know and that's what you can control that's literally the dichotomy of control which is at the core of stoicism and stoicism is closely related to mindfulness the dichotomy of control hold on to what you know and what you don't know is why people think like that i don't know why people have those views i don't respect them i don't value them and i will call them out but i will not become entangled by them because it's too overwhelming I will stick to my community and my community is, is one of empathy and they're the people I surround myself with. And also, I don't know if I have to shout this out for people, just because you put a hashtag in front of a word doesn't mean you're that thing. Hashtag be kind means fucking nothing if you're not willing to actually do it. So get into your community and express this to people. Don't let kindness be a radical act. That's what we're doing. And it's performative now. I was kind because I said it on Twitter. No, but I, I really don't know how the world has become that way, but that's not what kindness is. Kindness is very simple. It doesn't need to be filmed all the time. It's it's a very powerful thing. And what it, why it's powerful, let me explain that to you. Not that you need to know, but I sounded patronizing when I said that. I didn't, I was trying to make a big point. But kindness, what it does, what you don't realize if 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 at the right time it lands on somebody in a dark place, it might be their life jacket. That's the difference. So don't underestimate the value of it. And <clears throat> the other thing, just to, to point out, like, you know, it's okay to sit in your hole and do nothing from time to time and rest and assess and figure out, oh, fuck. I need a break from this. It's too fast for me. It's too chaotic. I need to take, I need to step back for a moment and then I'll assess everything. But if you're in that space and I'm aware that this, we talked about growth mindsets and stuff, stay there for a bit and then take baby steps out of it. Don't try to save the world. That's the one thing I will say. That's real mindset is actually going, it's not here in me. And that's where I fear with social media. Sometimes people are in that space where they're like, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling, whatever, for whatever reason, I, I, even not even in a really bad way, say creatively, I'm like everything I put out, is, I can't think straight. My head is muzzled. I got brain fog and I'm exhausted. I'm, I, my energy is low, whatever it is. Stay in that place. It's like the winter. It's like the little hibernation. Just stay there. Don't need to save the world. Don't need to prove anything to anybody. It will pass. It always passes. And I think, I think the problem is when we end up doing that, we go on social media and we see somebody telling us to get the fuck out of that place and just do something amazing. No, don't. You will, but not, not now. And I think that's what I call, you know, sit and wait for longer days and hold the, hold the stare of a winter's gaze. That's what I call it. And just sit and wait for longer days and hold the stare of a winter's gaze. That to me is true mindset. That's self-awareness. That's realizing some days it's good and some days it's not. And that's the reality of being a human being. And what I will say with that, you learn more about yourself in that space than you will ever learn when everything's 
Care Bears and Unicorns and you're flying. And when you, you really hit a wall in your performance, whether it's on the Shannon and you're in Lockree and there's a storm and your fucking arms are hanging off you, your head's going to go, I've been here before. I know exactly what to do and I'll always get through it. That's resilience. Resilience isn't ignoring adversity. It's coming back from it. And I think to me, I love mindset, but I love understanding that there's a spectrum to it. So anyone listening to this who feels, oh, fuck, I can't, I can't achieve today. That's okay. You will maybe next week. But right now, just take that space. And understanding it's not being lazy. It's actually assessing. It's a step back. And unfortunately, a lot of professional athletes like me and you never got to do that. You know, because it was go, go, go. But yeah, this is something I value massively. Yeah. <clears throat> well, hey, Niall, thanks so much for your time. Uh, greatly, greatly appreciate it. Love the chat. And yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I just want to thank you for, you know, you coming out and talking about your story. It helped me hugely. You obviously wouldn't know, but, uh, and the ripple effect of you doing what you did for six, eight years ago, but um, is huge and just fair play and for all the work you're doing now. And uh, just mention again, Lust for Life, just the different ways of, that people can support um yeah, Lust for Life is my charity I co-founded. It's youth mental health advocacy focused purely on education. How do we actually create early intervention programs for kids? We're in well over a thousand primary schools now. It's free. The program is completely free for schools. It's it's developed by the best experts in the game, assessed by UCD and DCU. We've done it right. Uh, but these are free and it, we want to keep it free and we want to be in every school by 2024 so we need support and whatever that support might look like for me guys a donation to lust for life schools program or you can check out the uh, the rising challenge for the river uh, shannon and you can donate that way which would be massively supportive because when i do hit that wall on the lockery it'd be nice to know we're doing it for for a good reason yeah uh, good stuff cheers <clears throat> cheers brian take care of yourself bud Cheers for listening in today. I hope today's podcast helped you on your journey. Be sure to check out the show notes in the description for a rundown of today's episodes and all the important links. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to be an absolute legend, please share it with a friend on social media or by text and let me know what you enjoyed about the episode over on our social media channels at Brian Moylet. I really love hearing your feedback and it helps us make the pod better. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts, you can leave up to a five-star review. If you're in sports or business and you want to get better results, you feel like you're capable of more, you want to be happier, more fulfilled, more successful in what you are doing, head over to my website now, offfieldrugby.com, and we'll set up a time to have a chat for free. You can get my new book now on Amazon and Audible, and the links are in the show notes. Thanks, Emil, for clicking in today. Have a brilliant rest of your day. Cheers.